Welcome to My One Question Is. This is a monthly podcast at the intersection of art, race, story, and hope. We're calling it an adventure and listening. We're asking questions. We're amplifying voices in the Akron art community. We want to break down cultural barriers through art and conversation. I'm Laura, and they're Jesse. Let's get started. Welcome back to My One Question Is. In today's episode, we sat down with Dakota Mace, a multidisciplinary Diné artist, where we talked about humility. Her art explores her culture through photography, weaving, beadwork, and papermaking. We're excited today to have a conversation about what humility means, both in her art and in her career. Thanks for joining us. My name is Dakota Mace. I am a interdisciplinary artist with work that focuses on translating um, not only the language of Diné history, but also our belief system. So I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, but currently live in Madison, Wisconsin. So I received my MA and MFA degrees in photography and textile design at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and my BFA in photography from the Institute of American Indian Arts. I identify as a Diné artist, um, so my work draws from the history of not only my Dene heritage, but also I explore different themes about family lineage, community, and identity. So what I kind of hope my audience takes away from my work is changing their understanding and perception of Dene culture, Native culture, Indigenous culture, uh, through alternative photography techniques, um, reading beadwork and paper making. All right, let's uh, let's dive right into your art. Let's talk about your newer works. I know when we were doing a little bit of research on you, we saw you just opened up a gallery show in New York City. Congrats on that. Um, talk to us about your work, your art, what inspires you and how humility might play a role in that. Of course. Uh, so the show that I'm currently working on is titled, um, there's a couple of works uh, part of the show, but there really is a special one titled Dahotayene, uh, which translates to sacred places. And this is something that's really important to me because this research for this project initially started during graduate school when I became interested in the family archive. Um, and this interest in the family album has been pretty much ongoing since as long as I could remember. Um, so I grew up kind of really admiring all the photographs in my grandparents' home, and especially one particular wall that was filled with so many memories and photographs. And what was really beautiful about that wall was that these images, you know, weren't displayed in the traditional way that we see most photographs and frames and everything. It was often cut out some different images or uh, those collaged in different ways. So it was really interesting to see how my family and my grandparents documented their lives and especially looking at those few material objects in those memories. Um, so this concept of family and the album, um, and especially my grandparents' home, became kind of the central point of all my work. And it was a place that I remember very fondly, and it's something that pops up a lot in my work, is looking at how the land and our memories kind of reside or are embedded within the landscape itself. So as I started to get older, I was really 
interested in continuing that idea and looking at how a photograph kind of gave us a chance to go back and relive those moments. Um, so going into graduate school, there was oftentimes when I started to learn about these family archives and kind of sense of disassociation when other people would go into collections and be like, you know, there's my family, um, or, you know, seeing people the way that they documented things. And the only documentation of my ancestors um, existed within the archives of museums and, and institutions and private collections. At that point, that's when I decided to see the family album as an opportunity to tell our stories, the stories of our families, our histories, and of course, our relationship to our land. Um, so Dajo Diana really focused on Huedi, which is also known as Bosque Redondo, uh, which is located in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. Huedi was the site that was the final stop for what is known as the Long Walk, uh, which was a painful removal of my ancestors from their home. That's really interesting. You said that in the Diné tradition that tell, retelling this story is said to like cause more harm. So how have you navigated um, doing that through your art and, you know, making keeping peace in your community? The only existing photographs from that period kind of really erased our identity and romanticized our pain. Um, so the stories that were remembered even today come from our elders, where each story is kind of passed on from one generation to the next. So this was kind of a huge important part of this project, was looking at these stories, looking at the history of Lady and how that history was omitted from our history books, our classes and everything that really furthered the effects of colonialism. So even today, elders choose not to tell these stories, believing that it could cause further harm that come from those memories. So in a sense, kind of a taboo associated with talking about it. Um, but I wanted the project to be by a platform for looking and using photography and oral narrative very carefully to offer healing for those who came before us and for future generations. And you were talking about the cyanotypes and the different kinds of photography that you use. What is that like um, when people see that your photography is a little bit different? Yeah, um, so I think something that really is important using utilizing the process of cyanotypes is that, um, you know, when we, we learn about it, especially in, you know, very traditional um, art programs, it's a photographic printing process and it was intended to make blueprints. Um, so a lot of photographers have really kind of taken it upon themselves to be able to push the narrative of the cyanotype. And that's something that I also wanted to do. But my reason for working with the process was to make contact prints of the land. Um, so a lot of the making and circulation of photographs that featured today people in the late and early 20th century or 19th and early 20th century um, were not made for Diné people. Uh, so these photographs were intended for ethnographic documentation that really furthered the the romanticized notion of indigenous people. So with the cyanotypes, I allow the land to create the final image. Um, so the cyanotypes are made from the earth, the plants, and the water surrounding many of these places that I visit. And these places have a deep and personal connection to the people that I work with. And the deep cochineal red that I kind of push the cyanotype further and die with um, signifies the importance of this color to Diné people. 
So the color that is used in our medicines, uh, used to protect those that are traveling, and the dye itself that's used to create this deep red also has an even longer history with all indigenous people as it's used in many of our weavings, and it's one of the earliest materials to travel in pre-colonial trades. So that's, I think that's something that's kind of really important is looking at these materials and being able to apply it from an indigenous perspective. And I think that's something really special. Um, I think a lot of up-and-coming indigenous artists that are doing um, is hoping that our audience kind of takes away a better understanding of indigenous people. And especially for myself, it's not only vital to speak about the histories of people, but it's also to provide a platform to understand the broader issues of indigenous histories within America. Um, so a lot of these events not only changed our culture um, and land, but it also, again, stems from colonization. So through my work, I hope that each narrative really tells the importance of our people and the various experiences um, that are pretty much the foundation of who we are to the name, which translates to the people. Have you ever had any, I don't know, issues with people just not understanding, like just the way that uh, photography is normally sort of like accepted and judged and curated and stuff, and then here you come with this something that's really unique and different, like how do you um, make sure that they understand, like is it does it take a lot of explanation and a lot of education, um, or are you feeling like people are starting to get it? Yeah, um, at first it does feel like a struggle, and I think a lot of Native and Indigenous artists kind of deal with this, is, you know, how much inspiration do we give in order to, especially context, in order to understand our work? Um, and that's one of the hardest things, is um, we're not only artists, but we're also, you know, historians and leaders and um, activists, and it's very hard to kind of create that separation with our work. Um, so oftentimes I've gotten responses that, my work is purely aesthetic. Um, it's like maybe you should read about the work, um, but it's also kind of really hard because my intention isn't to create work um, that's easy to understand. It's the um, ability to be able to kind of sit with a body of work, to be able to understand the complexity of the objects in connection to the histories. And I think oftentimes, especially within the art world, we almost have this immediacy that we need to understand something in order to grasp, you know, what the work is intended in being. And I think, especially with my work, the process of being very labor-intensive and very time-consuming, um, you know, it's kind of the appreciation to be able to kind of just sit back and to be able to enjoy or learn a work. Um, because oftentimes we as artists tend to forget about our intention for for what we create and especially the the time that it creates it time or the time it it takes to create a piece. Um and I think that's something that's really important, at least with the Take With Places series, as this project has been ongoing um for almost eight years and many of the photographs of my family come from their various personal archives and collections and Many of the cyanotypes that I create are also ongoing with the intention of making over 
2,000 of these small-scale pieces. And a number, this number itself, references the many unknown Diné lives that were lost during the long walk and at the internment camp in Fort Sumner. Um, so for myself, this project is never-ending. You know, it can continue to grow as the story, more stories are shared, uh, more experiences are created. And I think that's something to, for a lot of Indigenous artists, is that our history is one that isn't, that doesn't exist in a linear timeline. And this speaks to our viewpoint of seeing ourselves within the past, the present, and the future. Dakota, before you mentioned um, artists as a researcher, when you're talking about uh, University of Madison and the art program there that you did, could you elaborate on that? I don't know what that means. <laughs> and what that, what was, what's your process then if you're researching and doing art and how do those two come together? For myself, especially kind of a chance to be able to look at history as defining this new era of sovereignty and looking at the resiliency of my ancestors, the survival, um, but also how our stories are really open, opening up opportunities to see that history as a continuum of our traditions and culture. Um, and I think that's something that's really important when it comes to looking at engagement as an Indigenous artist, but also looking at it from the perspective of academia is, you know, how can we apply those very similar teachings in a classroom. Um, and I think that's something that I usually try to bring is looking at, you know, how we can learn from artists of color, um, people who are usually kind of taken out of the, the traditional historical context, especially when it comes to the history of photography. And I think that's something really important is to be able to look at photographers that have kind of reclaimed or taken, um, this idea of European or Western mediums and applied it to their their culture and to their identity. Um, so I think for, especially for myself, you know, the camera becomes an opportunity to allow the, the land and my community to represent themselves. That's really hard for people to grasp, I find. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because they're like, oh, yeah, this is different. That's cool. But they don't ever change anything about the way they do things. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's kind of the hardest hardest um, thing that at least I've approached, especially kind of um, audiences who are who are non-Indigenous is, um, you know, you can't teach our, our knowledge systems. You know, it's something that you have to... Um, grow up around or um, connect with in, in a more personal way. And I think that's kind of one of the hardest things is to be able to just have someone just sit or stand in front of a piece and be able to talk about, you know, what are the things that you are receiving from this piece, whether it happens to be um, a visual language or more oral language. Um, and, you know, how are those things helping or impacting the way that you're understanding the work? And I think for a lot of Indigenous people, you know, our identity and our um, beliefs exist within the work that we create. And I think that's something that is hard for people to understand is because a lot of that comes from the result of generational trauma. And I think for a lot of Indigenous people, and especially for myself, um, you know, I really try to challenge that documentation of Indigenous people by really decolonizing the violent visual history of colonialism 
and with my work, you know, for myself and for the people that I create this work for, it's an opportunity to heal and to especially look at how the land and our connection to the land and our stories that come from the land um, really inform us and really kind of bring us into a better understanding of what does it mean to be Indigenous and what does it mean to look at our histories and how does that continuum of our traditions and culture really inform the next generation in order to teach outsiders a better way of understanding um, Indigenous peoples. That's a lot, you know. <laughs> Other folks just yeah. get to make pretty things and hang them in galleries, right? Like, that's a huge yeah. burden. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I'm just kind of stumped at, the, you know, just the realization about mm-hmm. that, that it's like it just comes with such a, you know, with such a responsibility. Yeah, um, at first it does feel like a struggle, and I think a lot of and a lot of Native and Indigenous artists kind of deal with this. Is you know how much information do we give in order to, especially context, in order to understand our work? Um, and that's one of the hardest things is um, we're not only artists, but we're also you know historians and leaders and um, activists, and it's very hard to kind of create that separation with our work. Um, so oftentimes I've gotten responses that my work is purely aesthetic. Um, it's like maybe you should read about the work, um, but it's also kind of really hard because my intention isn't to create work um, that's easy to understand. It's the um, ability to be able to kind of sit with a body of work, to be able to understand the complexity of the objects in connection to the histories. And I think oftentimes especially within the art world, we almost have this immediacy that we need to understand something in order to grasp, you know, what the work is intended and meaning. And I think, especially with my work, the process of being very labor-intensive and very time-consuming, you know, it's kind of the appreciation to be able to kind of just sit back and to be able to enjoy or learn the work um, because oftentimes we as artists tend to forget about our intention for for what we create and especially the the time that it creates it time or the time it it takes to create a piece um, and I think that's something that's really important at least with the Sacred Places series as this project has been ongoing um, for almost eight years and many of the photographs of my family come from various personal archives and collections and many of the phenotypes that I create are also ongoing with the intention of making over 2,000 of these small-scale pieces and a number, this number itself references the many unknown Diné lives that were lost during the long walk and at the internment camp in Fort Sumner. Um, So for myself, this project is never-ending, you know, it can continue to grow as the story, more stories are shared, um, more experiences are created. And I think that's something to, for a lot of Indigenous artists is that our history is one that isn't, that doesn't exist in a linear timeline. And this speaks to our viewpoint of seeing ourselves within the past, the present, and the future. What do you think the most important thing 
uh, people need to know about working cross-culturally, either intertribally, like within the indigenous community, or when working with non-indigenous colleagues? Um, I think one of the most important things, especially when it comes to my work, is looking at the influence and interconnectedness of uh, all of these visual traditions. And, you know, not just photography, but also, um, you know, weaving and painting and these different artistic mediums that are all across North America and Central and South America. And what's really interesting as being um, not only an artist, but also working in academia is looking at um, design and learning from design and especially looking at how indigenous communities are creating this, um, are really investigating the significance of art making that really connects not only all indigenous people, but also kind of the value of the process itself in relation to ship to culture. Um, so this exploration is something that's really important that I think um, all artists should experience is looking at the process and the structure and the development of artistic traditions, not only in indigenous communities, but all cultures, and looking at those traditions and design concepts um, that have really helped shape um, you know, their influence throughout the, the history, especially art history. And I think that's something really important with my culture um, being one of many that have drawn, many have drawn inspiration from and studied, um, especially kind of thinking about the unethical usage of traditional design work on Western apparel. Um, there really is a need to kind of place historical context into art and design and to better understand the importance of this work. And I think that's kind of one of the most important steps or first uh, crucial steps into understanding a better way to build bridges between indigenous and non-indigenous people is to open up dialogue about those broader issues, especially in the ethics of art and design, looking at marketplaces, looking at, you know, the history of trade. And for myself as an indigenous woman, this hybridity of working not only conceptually with diverse cultures and my own um, really brings into perception that everything is connected through cultural expression. Um, and this is kind of my own personal academic research um, that's kind of led to me acknowledging that there is this lack of awareness when it comes to understanding cultural art and design and especially why these hold significance to these communities. Um, and then kind of one of the first steps to kind of take is, you know, how can we learn from art from these different communities and what are how are those being applied um, even today, and especially looking at social causes. Um, and I think some of the social causes that really have a big effect, especially with indigenous people, is looking at the line through pipeline, the artwork that is stemming from there, but also the missing and murdered indigenous women and how this fight to end the legacy of violence against indigenous women and children um, comes with a heavy burden for all indigenous people and especially the work that is being stemmed from there and looking at the importance of color when it comes to a lot of these um, social causes. So I think that's kind of one of the first things that indigenous people are really pushing towards is using art and using our our work to be able to bring out 
a better understanding of why um, these things need to change. As we continue to grow, my one question is, we hope to grow a community alongside it. And that community right now exists on Patreon. Join us at patreon.com backslash story. There you can get early access to our content, learn more about what we're doing, and support, even in a small amount, the efforts we're doing to build a community through conversation. You know, you have a bachelor's degree and a couple of master's degrees. It looks like you've had a pretty traditional fine art education. Would you say that's the case? Uh, I definitely would say for graduate school. Um, I would say for my BFA, it was a really unique experience because the Institute of American Indian Arts is kind of one of the first of its kind. Um, so it's actually a tribal college uh, that is situated in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And what's really unique about it is that the curriculum, as well as the courses and the professors, all put emphasis on indigenous histories um, and indigenous art practices. So that was something that I was really fortunate to be able to have an education um, based around us to look and understand my own indigenous or native identity, um, but also to apply that into the different types of mediums that I use. So that was kind of a really special thing for me. Um, but also going into graduate school, it was kind of the first time I ever went through what would be called the culture shock. And I think that was one of the first times that I realized that, you know, through the Institute of American Indian Arts, I was taught about amazing um, indigenous artists who really changed the way that we do a lot of our work. Um, but there wasn't a lot of emphasis on Western um, art history and um, artists that came from that period. So I kind of went into grad school, like completely unaware of all of that. Um, so I had to relearn um, and basically teach myself about those things. And especially as an Indigenous student, um, kind of going to UW-Madison, there wasn't a lot of Indigenous representation at the time. So it was kind of hard to navigate that. But thankfully, having amazing mentors throughout graduate school, but also um, just really great community that I was able to build um, here in Wisconsin. So would you say, because it sounds to me, and like from, and I apologize, I cannot pronounce, although I tried, when we interviewed them, I tried to pronounce their name. Uh, Nibi Wakamikwe. Nibi Wakamikwe. Yes. That's not that difficult. It's just every time I go to say it, I'm like, I'm afraid to <laughs> say it um, But it sounded like from the conversation that we had with them that there is this you know, huge, huge community. Um, and has that been built, like, since you've been at UW-Madison? Or, like, is that recent? Or do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely understand what um, Nibiru Kamikai is coming from. So UW is really unique in that we have an amazing indigenous community um, outside of the, the university. So there's a lot of... Um, you know, engagement that's happening. There's a lot of things um, that they do with programming for the youth. But when I went to the university, it was kind of no one kind of gave me that information and no one ever reached out. Um, so you kind of had to search around and find connections in that way. Um, 
just because it's it's kind of difficult to because it's such a big university to kind of connect everyone so to be able to find that community um which in the university is is pretty small in comparison to the rest of Madison and Wisconsin um you know it took a lot of it reaching out to other indigenous students indigenous professors and faculty members and to just you know kind of think about what does it mean to be you know a person of color within this institution but also you know what are the practices that they were also bringing into their teaching and for their students to be able to um, create more open doors and opportunities to feel like they're invited and everything because I think that's one of the biggest one of the hardest things for indigenous students is being separated from our communities and um, to be able to um, find that very similar um, connection from a place or kind of almost a home away from home. Just being around Ho-Chunk people living in, in Dejope or Madison for about 10 years now, I came, I came here for, for college, for school, and then I just didn't leave. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a really lovely place um, and a really, really special area with all of the lakes and rivers and waterways. Um, I'm really happy to be able to be a guest here for so long. Um, I always think it's a learning opportunity for people to learn how to say an Ojibwe name um, and that if it hadn't been for colonization and some of the horrible things, many of the horrible things that happened, this name would not be difficult for them to say. Um, they would be able to say it very easily and it would just be like any other um, any other name. It's, it's six syllables long. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not that bad. So, so you want to teach us how to say your name? Sure. Yeah. So Ojibwemowin, it's it's pretty iambic, like Shakespeare. Um, so no stress, stress, no stress, stress. And so this is just the way that I was taught to explain. And if it is incorrect, I apologize to any language speakers who are listening. I'm still very much so learning. But um, so kind of a, a general ways um, to understand what the, iamb- the iambic. So no stress, stress. So nib, i, wa, kam, ig, kwe. Nib, i, wa, kam, ig, kwe. Nib e nib e wa wa kam um ig e ig with ig. A, a really soft g ig kwe kwe nib you will come kwe nib you got this I believe in you <laughs> let me okay, can I try can I try you got okay. this you got this Steve nib wa kam kwe yes that's it. Yay! <laughs> yeah, you just—it's all that time you spent in Minnesota. That's what you get for being from Minnesota. You're just—I said I was from Leech Lake. That's Minnesota Ojibwe. That's why you're just like, oh no. See, he originated from closer where that name was born too. So he's got—he—he's he, got the that that land memory, that land understanding that you might not. We say it again, so I can try again. Sure. So Nibiwakamikwe. Nibiwakamikwe. There you go. See. And for me, this this name is mine. I haven't met another person with that Ojibwe name. And so for me, that's really special. Um, a lot of times when we're given those names, they're meant to be unique. And I think that's something that's really special and important for us to do is to realize that these names are ours just as much as those English names. Um, and having that that respect and that joy in them, because these are really cool. And, and they tell us in a lot of ways why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. I know I asked you this before. I was really fascinated by what you told me um, when I asked you about 
um, the barriers that you might face in the art world as an Indigenous woman? And then also, um, you know, could you speak to the idea of Indigenous art being utilitarian, like in a museum setting or gallery setting, as opposed to it being, you know, considered art? Uh, yes, I think one of the most important things, um, especially when it comes to my artwork, you know, I'm just one perspective when it comes to um, looking at how my culture and my heritage kind of comes through my work. And what I usually try to explain at the beginning is that a lot of my creative process um, always comes from my culture and home, which is situated in New Mexico. And being a, being a woman, my relationship with my family comes from my connection to the land that we're from. So a lot of the materials or the narratives that are centered around my work comes from that community in Mexico. Um, so we're, with at least my family, we're situated deep in the New Mexico desert, and this is where many of my pieces are created. Um, so whether that's visiting or gathering materials or taking photographs of the surrounding landscape, um, you know, each of these pieces become an extension of my relationship to our sacred land. And one of the biggest person or people that really influenced my work um, was my grandmother. And she played a tremendous role, not only in my work as an artist, but also the way that I approach um, educating students even today. Um, so with my grandmother, although she passed at a very young age, uh, it's one of those things where within Diné culture, our matrilineal heritage is passed through our, our grandmothers. Um, so the memories that I hold of her are really giving me a chance um, to be able to see into her world and especially the photographs that I have of her and really understanding that the the resiliency of strong Diné women and looking at how what really stands out for me is visualizing her strength as a mother, as a wife, a sister, a grandmother, and especially existing within those tangible markers of history. Um, so for myself, through that kind of her short timeline, uh, she really inspired a lot of children, but I think this is something that happens for a lot of Indigenous students is that, you know, we, we, see to our, we look to our ancestors as a way to be a lifeline to our culture, um, especially allowing us to kind of reclaim our narratives through our family photographs and really challenge the traditional notions of the you know colonial power that surrounds the reading of indigenous photographic imagery, but that also applies the same way to indigenous um, teachings. It's such a complicated thing, right? People do all those virtue mm -hmm. signaling. But it's like to actually do that is really different. And I think you nailed it when you said something about like the immediacy of understanding. You know, here you are taking the time to explain all these things. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read uh, uh, Paolo Freire, his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I heard, I've heard about it. I've, I've yet to read it. <laughs> It is like the basis of like everything in my life. I mean, I read that book and was like, oh my God, the world makes sense. And he's a South American yeah. um, academic, also like a Christian 
Um, but his whole thing is like, it's totally against any kind of spiritual principles to oppress other people. So until we stop doing that, um, nothing else matters. Right. And so he like applied mm-hmm. this all to education and how, and like people having access, you know, all kinds of people having the same access to education and how, you know, the inequality, how that, um, affects people when not everybody has equal access to a good education and stuff like that. That was where he sort of sunk everything into his life's work. But one of those main premises is that it's not the oppressors that liberate the oppressed. That responsibility is on the oppressed to liberate themselves, to educate everybody else. And I just that really like, stuck with me you know like I mean I can identify as a woman I can identify as a woman of color I have no idea what your experience is like you know just accept mm-hmm. that when I listen and you can tell me um but I think about that like in you know about like just your whole perspective and I just appreciate that you take the time not only with me on this podcast but also you know in it seems all the efforts of your life to take the time to educate and to explain and all of that, like, cause that's a lot, you know? So thanks for doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's a, um, you know, something that I've always, especially at least in my family is that, um, you know, the, the women and especially I learned a lot from my grandfather is, you know, that's kind of the way that we've, we've always been is, you know, to teach, through the practice of making and the the practice of um, sitting down because I think there's something really beautiful about this idea of just taking a moment to breathe, taking a moment to to understand the the things that are ongoing, the things that are affecting us, and to be able to learn from those experiences. And um, especially with my artwork, as I talked, you know, about it being very time-consuming, is that there's something almost meditative, um, you know, that allows yourself to kind of go through those moments and to, um, you know, figure out what are the ways that you're, how to, you know, heal from those traumas, how to heal from those moments. And um, and I think that's something hopefully people take away from my work is, you know, although, um, you know, beadwork and weaving can be very beautiful, there's something really important about taking the time to learn from the land um, and that's something that we're, especially all Dene children are taught, is to to look at the land as, you know, almost as our, our grandfathers or grandmothers. And, um, you know, they're, they're telling us these experiences and to kind of learn and take away from that. Awesome. All right. So it's rapid fire round question time. Tell us about one thing that we don't talk enough about. That's actually a really great one. Uh, I think something that we don't talk a lot about is looking at, I guess for myself, um, kind of my academic research is looking at, you know, the appropriation of art and design. I don't think, you know, that's something that we talk about a lot or it kind of gets misunderstood or, um, you know, the definition of appropriation gets really skewed um, you know, when it comes to the point where people are like, you can't wear that anymore because that's appropriation. And it's like, it actually goes against everything <laughs> um, for that culture because there are different communities that really enjoy the um, the chance to share their identity with others. Um, and I think that's something 
it's often, like I said, misunderstood and it'd be great to be able to kind of connect with other indigenous communities or people of color um, to really kind of push for a better understanding of that term. Thank you. Next in the rapid fire is best, best media that you've consumed recently and be it a book, podcast, TV, something that you want us to share or amplify a voice of. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that's really important for, um, you know, especially TikTok because a lot of people just kind of associate it with like ridiculous 30 second videos. Now it's like three minute long videos. Um, but I think it's the amount of information that a lot of these young activists are being able to bring um, to the for- forefront. And I think that's important is um, something that I really believe in, especially within academia, is looking at the accessibility of um, language. Because, you know, especially being in academia all throughout grad school and working in it, um, you know, a lot of that information isn't accessible to your um to most people. And I think being able to kind of take that information and make it easy to understand um, is really kind of benefiting the communities and being able to say, you know, hey, this is um, something that we really need to address. And, you know, especially here in the U.S., there are so many amazing individuals that are kind of looking at uh, Indian law and looking at our treaties and being able to kind of navigate it and, um really filter out the most important things that we need to understand and the things that need to change about it. Any favorite TikTokers? Oh gosh, I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> There's a ton of them. And then, yeah, just like I said, it's, it's been interesting kind of watching it from, you know, an artist perspective and academic perspective and just, yeah, just seeing how this younger generation is just translating this in a totally new way. It's, it's so cool. When we originally made these questions, it was originally the best book you've read. And we sort of changed that to expand that because younger people are showing that same knowledge in a different way in those little sound bites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's great to see how those are produced and put out to the world. All right. Best book you've read this year. Uh, best book that I've read this year. I think the one that really has stood out to me recently has been... Um, Museum Transformations. So I'm doing a lot of research on looking at the practice of decolonizing um, museum collections. And this book was um, kind of really interesting because it's kind of the first of its kind um, to kind of look at the representation of art and especially history and looking at the contemporary approach of decolonization and looking at it through the perspective of museum exhibitions and program development. Interesting. The other book that you suggested to us last time was about women of color in academia. Yes, that is also another book that I am reading at the same time, which is uh, Community as Rebellion. It's a small book, but I think it's really important because it looks at the, um, you know, for students and especially faculty of color within academia and especially for the author who created this book, uh, kind of the struggles that they had to deal with in terms of um, classism, colonizing or colonization, and of course, kind of unequal structures that really perpetuate um, systemic violence within universities. And I think it's really important in terms of reading material because you, you learn about these 
acts of protest and especially boycotting and looking at how community building can really inform and combat, you know, especially within academia and these larger institutions really tokenizing a lot of indigenous and especially people of color and their experiences and their narratives. Okay. Well, let me ask you something. I live in Canada now and um, legislatively and stuff like that. There's some progress that's different than my experiences, you know, in the U S and also spending time on reservation in the U S and stuff like that. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit different here. Um, And there is a huge sort of talk about, the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission report that came out a few years ago and trickling down to universities right now. So with things like diversity hires and, you know, land acknowledgements and all these kinds of things. And um, is there anyone out there that you know of any any university, any, you know, organization that you think has got this figured out that could be a model for other people? I think that is, you know, something kind of really important to look at is you know, these these different types of institutions and the ways that they're looking at these ways of engaging community and kind of the one institution that I think is, um, you know, they, they have their own faults and they're they're actively trying to change them. But I think the, the biggest one that I think is doing a lot of good work is the um, Native American NMAI, so the National Museum of American Indian Arts. And I think the reason why I say that is because they were doing a lot of active research and working with communities long before, um, you know, this this trend of the land acknowledgments and especially um, how they've worked to make sure that they keep their promises um, to the individuals, especially the artists that they work with. They were kind of the first to start looking at um, the repatriation of objects. And that's something that's kind of really important because I think a lot of these institutions, what they kind of fail to achieve is that these statements and land acknowledgements that they do are very performative and there is nothing at the end in terms of action or anything that they're giving back to the community. And I think that's kind of one of the hardest things is that a lot of distrust that comes from these bigger institutions and especially universities is that, you know, there's these promises of change to happen, but they're Often, you know, it rarely is seen, especially, you know, in our generation or our time at universities. And oftentimes it's it's something that rarely happens within that first 10 years or 20 years even of the the promise of those situations. And I think, um, you know, a lot of museums and a lot of universities can kind of look to um, tribal colleges, look to institutions that are being funded or organized through um, tribal communities and seeing how they are actively creating change, but also still trying to bring a better awareness in terms of what does it mean to be Indigenous existing within those spaces. Thanks for that. Um, I know when I first moved to Canada and I started working at the university, there's like a land acknowledgement, you know, you're supposed to put it in your email signature and in your syllabus and all this kind of stuff. And I immediately called the family that I've been working with on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And I called them and I asked the one son, I said, what do you think about all this? Because it made me uncomfortable, right? And I was like, mm-hmm. is this virtue signaling? Like, what is going on here? And he said, mm-hmm. oh, so they're saying that they are you know, living on land that's stolen, do you know how much rent they're paying? (laughs) 
And mm-hmm. it's funny because then I've continued to ask that question. So what is the relationship? You know, the universe. So we're just saying, mm-hmm. oh, we, we live on stolen land. Like what a horrible thing to do. We recognize mm-hmm. that we took this. That doesn't sit right with me, <laughs> Dakota. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like I said, there's there's a lot of things that need to happen, and especially um, you know here in the U.S., there's a lot more complexity when it comes to the relationship of Indigenous people, especially with the um, government entities. And I think that's something that um, you know there is this uh, younger generation that is really pushing against that. And I think that's something that's really important is that these these voices are coming through, and there's these important, um, you know, students and scholars and um, community members that are really questioning, you know, these these performative acts and, you know, what does it mean to create a land acknowledgement? What does it mean to engage with the Indigenous community? And how can that be something that is, for, you know, ongoing and isn't something that just happens in that, you know, Native November or, you know, whatever month is dedicated to Indigenous people and it's, you know, it's really upsetting that, um, you know, a lot, oftentimes it kind of gets swept under the rug, but I think there um, has been a lot of change, and especially looking at social media being at the forefront of this. And I think that's something that's really important um, that a lot of people don't talk about is that influence of um, especially Instagram and TikTok and how we are getting access to this information a lot more quickly. And people are learning about these um, moments of, you know, especially kind of not withholding those promises and everything, and people are, um, you know, creating dialogue, and I think that's really important. Absolutely. A lot of my Instagram feed, I'm still resisting TikTok because I know I will just disappear into it. Um, so I'm still kind of <laughs> resisting. I watch a lot of TikToks that people send me, but I, like, won't commit to it myself, you know? Um, yeah, but yeah, like there's so many people, like especially in Ontario, and I'm just like learning about this place that I live, and there's this huge sort of reckoning or like uprising, and you know, there's like this young Anishinaabe mm-hmm. guy, and he's like, he just did this series of like things you need to know about the Indian Act, and he 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 just does these little TikToks. Kid is like 21 or something, and he's like saying like this actual thing, this is how it realized in my family. It's a really amazing, quick and simple and easy way to make sense of things for people who are trying to understand it, right? My one, my one last question here is anything that we forgot to mention? Anything that you'd like to add, projects to speak of? No, I think we, we covered everything, at least from what I can remember from our last talk. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you so much. I tried so hard to save that audio, but it was not happening. No worries. <laughs> I'm I'm happy to do it again. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for introducing us to Nabima Kamikwe. Yes, close. <laughs> Nabima Kamikwe. <laughs> Nabima Kamikwe. All right. I'm going to get it. I'm trying. <laughs> you will. Um, <laughs> you know, that was like such a fascinating thing. Jesse and I um, hung up with them and we said, uh, so road trip? Yeah, an amazing individual, um, you know, does some amazing um, stick and poke tattoo, indigenous tattoo work. And um, yeah, I just live right down the street from them. So I'm always visiting, stopping by. And that is so cool. And you met them because they are in residence there? At the university? Uh, no, we actually met years ago, just connection through um, 
you know, Native people talking to one another. And I think that was roughly maybe about four years ago. And, um, yeah, we've, we've just stayed connected and we stayed friends and, um, we kind of help each other out in terms of, um, you know, opportunities that pop up if there's things that I think would really fit for, you know, uh, maybe a comic way. I mean, I usually pass on that information and everything. We didn't talk too much about humility today, but I think it was everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you did touch on it a lot just without like specifically saying the word humility. Thanks again for your time, Dakota. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And thanks again for inviting me. Awesome. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please follow us at Akron Art Story on Instagram and Facebook. We're fundraising for Not Your Mother's Quilting Bee. Please consider becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com slash Story. You can see our goals for the project and find out how you can be a part of the Akron Art Story. You can get a whole bunch of benefits from signing up for a dollar just to hear us talk a bit earlier. Or for a bit more, you can get a sticker. A sticker you can stick on things. And if you want to donate a little bit more, you can get a t-shirt. And then you'll be able to wear that in your community. And when someone walks up to you one day, you'll be like, hey, nice shirt. Thanks. It's from the Akron Art Story. Thank you for tuning in to My One Question Is. We hang out at the intersection of art, race, story, and hope. We thank you for joining us on this adventure in listening. I'm Jesse, and she's Laura. Until next time. Until next time. See you later. Thank you. My One Question Is is funded by a technology grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation's 2021 Knight's Art Challenge. All funding for the project is being handled by the Kent State University Foundation.